0: Well, this morning we're starting a brand new series called Who Needs God? And the message for this morning is a little bit different. It's going to be a little bit stranger than usual. Because what we're going to seek to do in our time together this morning is really set the foundation for the rest of this series. And it may seem unorthodox, it may seem kind of strange at first, but I just encourage you to to stick in there with me as we kind of process through some of these things. Because as we are in this series called Who Needs God?, That's really the question that we're seeking to answer. Who needs God? Why do we even need God in the first place? What is this all about? And it's, in reality, maybe a question that some of us have struggled with our whole lives. So one of the strangest things about religion and about church and about God in general is, why do we have to believe? Why do we have to really believe in God? I mean, isn't it something that we should just know? should there ever be a doubt or a question about it? I mean, I never take on faith that I'm married. I never wake up in the morning and say, I think that I'm married. I believe that I'm married. I just know that I'm married. And it was something so important and so fundamental as belief in God. Don't you think it's something that we should just naturally know? That we should never have to question, that we should never have to have any kind of doubt or anything on that? And even at that, if we do have to believe Why does believing in God seem like it's something that's so difficult to do? Why is it so hard? Shouldn't it be something that's easy? So when we look at this, we have to ask, why do we need God? Why do we really struggle through all of this? And even though we don't want to admit it, maybe some of us really wrestle with this question. Maybe some of us have really dabbled in like, do I really believe in God? Do I really feel like I need God? And some of us may have this extraordinary faith where it's never been a question. Some of us may have little faith where we've thought about this from time to time. Maybe some of us have lost or we've walked away from our faith. Or maybe some of us are searching for our faith again. But we all, regardless of where we stand in our faith, we all find ourselves here in the same place this morning. We've all gathered together in this church. And here's a really cool fact that we really have to start to think about. Check this out. Today, regardless of what you believe in, regardless of where your faith is, we are all traveling at 67,000 miles an hour around the sun. It's pretty crazy to think about, right? And there's barely even a breeze that exists outside. And not only are we traveling at 67,000 miles around the sun an hour, that's 20 miles in the blink of an eye, 20 miles every second. So, I don't care what other people are telling you, your New Year's resolutions are already off to a fantastic start because you're doing like 1.6 million miles a day, right? That's pretty impressive if you actually start to think about it. But we've been doing this our whole life with absolutely no effort whatsoever. And if you don't know this, we live in what's often referred to as the Goldilocks zone. The Goldilocks zone means that the earth is in a position from the sun where we're not burning up. And we're not freezing cold. So we're not too hot. We're not too cold. We're just right, right? And it's called the Goldilocks Zone. And I find this so fascinating because, regardless if you believe in God, regardless if you've ever struggled with this question or not, this is the reality of the world that we live in. That we're traveling so fast, yet we're. Are still staying planted firmly on the ground, that we're not burning up from the sun or we're not too cold all the time from being so far away from it. We're just perfect. And I find it so difficult to believe that there's not a God who has put all this into place, who has made all this an actual reality for us. But that's not how most of the world thinks. And most of the world, they ask this question that we're seeking to ask of this series, and it's who needs God? Do we even really need God? And some of us will say, yeah, of course we need God. But then the question is, well, then why don't you live your life that way? And some of us say, well, no, we don't really need God. But then they find it difficult to live a life that's completely devoid of God, of something that seems godly in their life, whatever it may be. And the sad reality is that most, more Americans than ever in history, they're starting to struggle with this. And their question isn't necessarily, do I need God? But the question has become, do I need religion? Like I said, more Americans than ever in our history, they're walking away from God and they're walking away from their religion. And the reason that they're pulling away from religion and God, it isn't because atheism is attractive. It's because their religion, what they believe in, has become unattractive to them. In fact, more and more people in our culture in the United States are saying, look, religion is actually the problem. Religion is what's wrong with this world. See, we were brought up in our lives to believe that religion had the answers, that religion was the solution to everything that's going on. But the more and more that we look around at the world, the more and more that we look and see what's happening around us, it's easy to come to this conclusion that religion is actually our problem. And so something interesting happened that maybe most of you aren't aware of. Right after 9-11, when the Twin Towers were destroyed and the Pentagon was attacked, there was an initial surge in our country of all things Christian, all things Jewish, all things pretty much religious. And the next Sunday, the churches, the synagogues, the temples, everything was packed to the brim with people. That next Sunday, people, regardless of what their faith was, regardless if they had walked away from God or if they had stepped foot in a church, and in years, people came to church seeking God. They came to church to praise Him, to give Him glory, to give Him thanks, to seek Him for answers. And there was this massive surge of all things religious. And it was amazing. And then the second Sunday after that, there was still a big push, but not as big as that first one. And then by the third Sunday, Well, church attendance was right back to normal. And then something else very unique happened. Right after that, on that fourth Sunday, there was a surge of anti-religion. In fact, immediately following 9-11, neuroscientist Sam Harris, he began writing a book that was called The End of Faith with the subtitle, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. Sure, that religion, terror, And the future of reason. And this was a scathing critique of every single thing considered religious. And he took it to publisher after publisher after publisher, but no publisher wanted to touch it because they felt right after 9-11, anything that was anti-Christian would probably be something that nobody would want to read and nobody would want to touch. So he had a difficult time getting it published. But eventually over time, he finally found one publisher who was able to take it and say, yes, And that book actually spent 33 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. The Christians, they hated this book. They absolutely hated what it stood for. And it got such a negative response from the Christian community. He actually wrote a second book following it up, addressed specifically to the Christians saying, hey, look, it's not Christianity that I'm attacking. It's all things religious that I am attacking. And in that same year, the book came out. Richard Dawkins published a book called The God Delusion, At the opening section of his book, he tells us specifically why he published it in the first place. It wasn't about atheism, but rather about targeting religion. And this is what he says in the opening paragraph. He says, if this book works as I intend it to, religious readers who open it will be atheists by the time they put it down. Over 3 million people purchased this book in 37 different languages. In the year after the God Delusion came out, Christopher Hitchens published his book called God is Not Great how religion poisons everything. And once again, this was an attack on all things religious. And it wasn't an argument for atheism as it was to say, hey, look, in our culture, in our country, religion is a problem. And these guys were considered rock stars. They went on late night television shows. They were immersed in in book signings and book deals. Their books sold millions of copies. They were YouTube sensations. People watched their debates over and over and over again and they were rock stars. And it wasn't that there was a surge in our country of atheism, but a significant percent of people in our nation actually began to disconnect from religion, disconnect from all things religious. In fact, so many people moved away from it, we actually came up with a title or a term to kind of categorize all of these people. And it's a term that maybe some of you are familiar with and it's called the nuns. Now, gotta be careful how you spell it. It's not the way you think, it's the N-O-N-E-S. And this movement was called the rise of the nuns. And what this really means is that you're not really affiliated one way or the other. And the nun category, it makes up about 23% of the US population today who just say, look, we're not affiliated with religion. We don't want anything to do with church. They don't know, they don't care. They just don't need it. They say, look, we're not hostile towards religion. We're not hostile towards Christianity or anything else. We just don't need it. See, the church that we grew up in, the God that we grew up learning about has become unattractive to us. And we really just don't want anything to do with it. We find religion extraordinarily unattractive. Now, maybe this is good news for some of you because maybe some of you have been searching for an answer. Like, you know what? I, I, the God that I grew up hearing isn't really who I believe in today, but I don't know. Do I, I want to be a Christian, but I don't really feel like I'm a Christian. Where do I fall in this category? Well, maybe you're a nun. And, you know, if that's you, maybe you can get excited and go home and call your parents and say, Mom, Dad, I know you've been worrying about my spiritual faith, but guess what? I finally figured out what I am. I'm a nun. Spelling is important, right? Or maybe you get in your car and you speak to your wife or your husband or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or to your parents and say, hey, look, I know that I've been struggling. I know that I've been doubting. It's not the fact that I hate Christianity. It's not the fact that I really disbelieve things. It's just, it's become unattractive to me. That what I hear, what I see, what I believe in is just not appealing to me anymore. And I'm not quite sure what to do with this. But they say, you know, here's what I know for sure, religion and the God that I grew up believing in, well, it's lost its appeal. And this now makes up 23% of the American population. Now, obviously, I can't speak for all the religions, and I would never pretend to do so. But this migration away from Christianity to the nuns is millions of people that have grown up in the church that have heard the same messages that you and I have heard, that know the books of the Bible, they can recite scriptures, they know and they can tell you about creation and the stories of Jesus and all of these things. And whereas I can't speak of all religions, I can pretty much say this with confidence though. The Christians that have migrated to the nuns category, well, there's a great chance I truly believe that it's actually the church's fault. Because when you open the pages of the gospels, when you look at the life of Jesus through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, there is this unmissable picture of Jesus. That when you look at these stories from the beginning all the way to the very end, when we look at the character of Jesus, the people who are absolutely nothing like Jesus, well, they loved Jesus. Not the miracle worker, not the teacher, not the guy who said these things that are worth still trying to process and understand, but the person of Jesus. He was so attractive to people who were completely unlike him. And people loved him for this. And the scripture says that we are this, the church are supposed to be like the body of Jesus. The hard part is, is that the church has a hard time being that body, being that picture of who Jesus is. And if Christianity is not compelling and it's so easy to migrate away from, well, I'm really convinced that it's because we have the wrong version of who Jesus is. We have the wrong picture of who Jesus is supposed to be. The thing that convinces me of this more than anything else is the deconversion stories that I hear. And there are so many of them from blogs and rants and stories and articles and just conversations of people. And some of them, it's automatic because of some tragedy that exists in life that people just walk away from their faith. Sometimes it's a movie or a book or it's a person or a family member that they interact with. But when I hear these deconversion stories, one thing is absolutely unmistakable. And every single one of them that I hear, the reason that they deconverted from Christianity actually has nothing to do with Christianity. It has nothing to do with what the Bible has to say. And as I listen to these stories, it breaks my heart because I hear people say, look, I decided based off of the experience, based off of what I have felt, based off of what's happened to me, that I'm walking away from the faith, based off of what I think that God is doing I'm stepping away and it breaks my heart because these are the same stories that I say, you know what? I don't believe in that kind of a God either. Because that's not the real picture of who the real God is and what he wants to do for you. And in the first original first century version of Christianity never embraced a lot of these ideas that we find so offensive within our faith. And so for the next few weeks, what we want to do in this series is try to correct that to kind of reshape our idea, our our mental image of who that God actually is, and maybe start to think, hey, you know what? Maybe my whole life, maybe the God that I grew up believing in is the wrong picture of who the real God is, and that's why I struggle. That's why I doubt. That's why I have some issues within my faith, and to do so, I want to start this morning and beginning our conversation going way, way, way to the outer edge of our discussion, And I want to talk about this idea of atheism, an update on atheism, if you will. It's the main alternative to Christianity. And the reason that I want to do this this morning is because so many people have stepped away from our faith and they're moving towards this idea of atheism. And I think it's really important that we understand exactly what it is that they're moving towards. Because maybe some of you have been thinking, you know what, I struggle with faith. Maybe I've lost my faith. Maybe you find a family member or a relative or or somebody that you work with who's moving towards atheism and you owe it to yourself to know exactly what it really means to walk away from God, what that belief system actually looks like. Because when you step away from faith, when you step away from church, when you step away from God, regardless of where you're stepping towards, you need to understand where you're going because sometimes you may find yourself in a situation or in an ideal or a theology that you never wanted to be in in the first place. The bottom line is this, folks, you cannot move away from something without moving towards something else. And you owe it to yourself to know exactly what this something else is. And the good news is all of these writers that we talked about earlier, well, they've actually set the stage to give us an update on what atheism looks like in our current century today in our generation, in our culture. And what they've been able to say is, look, atheism isn't simply disbelief in God. Rather, it's a complex belief system that logically leads to some very unsettling conclusions. And unsettling, it's not a truth test. When we look at this, it's not a truth test. In other words, something can be unsettling and true at the same time. For instance, your teenage daughter's boyfriend. It's true, but it's very unsettling right? We know that this is the case, and something can be absolutely true, but it just kind of rubs us the wrong way on the inside. And so many people who have stepped away from religion and Christianity are doing so because of these unsettling outcomes, or these unsettling experiences, or maybe the consequences of the Christian faith in which they have experienced in their own walks of life. And so I simply want to update you this morning. I know it's going to be kind of weird and kind of out there, but on what atheism looks like in our century and our culture today, because we know so much more now than we ever did before. And today's message is kind of like a, huh, kind of sermon, because it's really giving us this idea of if we choose to walk away from God, guess what? This is what you're walking towards. This is the reality of the world that exists out there for you. So there's six main things that I want us to know. And the first three may be brand new to us. The last three are things that we've kind of grown up hearing. If you write this down, this is what they are. The first one is this, and I call it the illusion of the mind. The illusion of the mind. And this theory states that if there is no God, there really is no you that exists in there. And this is all about the whole idea of that when God exists in you, he guides you he directs you, he's there for you, he speaks to you, he works inside of you, but if he is not there, well, there really is no you. There's no conscious, there's no mind, if you will, that exists inside of you. And we all know what our brains are, but this whole idea of the mind, it really is just an illusion. In a world that's biology, in a world that's chemistry and physics, there's no place for this subconsciousness, if you will. In 2011, Christopher Hitchens wrote a book as he was dying from pneumonia related to his cancer, and he called it mortality. And when he realized essentially that his disease was a death sentence, he desired to chronicle the last few weeks, the last few months of his life. In the book, because he was dealing with his cancer, he would continually have these conversations with his doctors. And his doctors would come up to him and say things like, Christopher, you just need to keep fighting. You just need to keep trying. You just need to keep reacting positively to these things. And he eventually stopped his doctors and he said, hey, look, you know what? Please stop referring to me or to my will because they don't exist. I'm just a body and nothing more. That's it. That's all that's in my life. That if there is no God, well, everything's chemistry and everything's biology. And in a world that's driven by the laws of physics and the laws of nature, well, that's true. There's no Matt. There's no you. There's no me. There's just biology, And so the first unsettling conclusion that we have to wrestle with is that if there is no God, there really is no you. You're just a body that exists, that's inhabited, and absolutely nothing else. Kind of seems hopeless. Kind of seems frightening, if you will. The second one is this, the illusion of free will. The illusion of free will. In a world that's governed by the laws of physics, there is no room for free will everything is determined because the idea of free will, it doesn't jive with the universe that's driven and controlled by these laws of physics. You know, Stephen Hawking, who suffers from ALS, but his mind is just amazing. He talks and he writes about things that us mere mortals can't even possibly comprehend or stop to think about. But even then, we can't really stop to think about it because the first theory states we don't have a conscious mind to actually process things like that. But nevertheless... He believes in something that's called determinism. And it's this idea of the illusion of free will. In fact, he did a lecture a couple years ago where he said everything about the human experience is determined. And because it's determined, our experiences as humans, they don't matter. This view states that we're just biology. We're just moving around in a determined pattern with no purpose, with no goal in life because everything's already determined for us. There's no free will, if you will. But if this was the case, if everything is already determined, if you have no control over your outcome, let me ask you this question. Why do you still look both ways before you cross the street? So it's very interesting when we see this because it's an unlivable worldview. We want to have some kind of control. We want to have this feeling of the ability to have control over our actions, our decisions, what we do and what we don't do. And the unlivable worldview, when if you're going to be an atheist, this, this, conclusion that's on selling to us is that if we decide God is not in the picture, well then this is the reality that awaits us. That everything is determined and you're just a body that's really just moving along in a determined pattern with no choice in the matter. Here's the third one. It's called the illusion of value. The illusion of value. And if I brought a box in here and I said, hey look, I've got a box full of value. You know what would be inside of it? Nothing. It would be empty. Why? Because we believe that value is a thing and we exercise it and we leverage this idea of value all the time. Not just financial value, not the value of people or the value of work or exercise or the value of words, but this old concept of value, it's not scientifically possible because you can't measure it in a world that's governed by physics. You can't measure value because you ascertain, you give value to things that mean the most to you. But if the you doesn't exist, well, then you can't give value to something. You can't ascertain value, but yet we leverage it all the time. We use value all the time. And there's no actual value. There's only a given value that in my predetermined way of thinking, I give value depending on what means the most to me, what means the most, what's going to work the best for me, what matters the most to me. And this is a really big deal, especially when it comes to this idea of justice. Because when we look at this idea of justice, it means that justice is just what you want it to be. In other words, in a world where there is no God, where it's just physics and chemistry and biology, there's no justice that holds us accountable because everything is predetermined. And that what justice exists in your life is already predetermined as what works for you. And the justice that exists in someone else's life is what is just for them. And so you come to this place where you say, hey, this is the justice that works for me, and this is the justice that works for you, and I can't infringe upon that, and you can't infringe upon my justice. So there's no level of accountability. There's no true justice that exists inside of the world. And so this unsettling conclusion is that if we take God out of the picture, and we're left with just physics and biology and chemistry, all value goes away. There is no value. There is no meaning because it's just an illusion. Everything is just a figment of our imagination. And here's the thing, that may be true, but we can't live that way. As soon as we open our mouths, as soon as we interact with people, as soon as we talk with people, we give value to them. We give value to their words. We give value to their friendship with our interactions with them. These are the first three things that we have to struggle with is these unsettling conclusions that if we walk away from God, these don't exist. There's no me. There's no mind that controls who I am. There's no free will that exists. There's no value in my life. And that seems pretty bleak. That's not a way that I would want to live my life. And here's the next three. And we're going to go through these quick because they're things that most of us have heard before. The fourth one is this, the illusion of substance. The illusion of substance. And it states what we all know is that something came from nothing. This is the big idea of this big mystery that what happened before the big bang, Right? but we can't really say what happened before the Big Bang because in this theory, well, nothing really happened. And we can't say that anything was before because the word before is a word that involves time. And that we know in this theory that time was created after the Big Bang, that there was suddenly matter and there was suddenly space and there was time and the laws of nature and the laws of physics that govern all of that. But before that, well, nothing really existed And so in Richard Dawkins, he says this, even cosmology is waiting on its own Darwin. That Charles Darwin gave us natural selection and evolution, but they're still waiting on someone to come up with a theory that explains how all of this really came to be in the first place. And people discredit the Bible and people discredit God on this. They say, well, how can God really make something out of nothing? We can't measure that because it's never happened in our life. We can't recreate that. So therefore it must not exist to begin with. And so this unsettling conclusion that we're left with is that if there was nothing, then you believe that there was something already there just floating around, lost in the abyss of space, waiting for a random situation to perfectly occur, occur to make you and I be here today. Seems like a stretch to me. The fifth one is this, the illusion of life. The illusion of life, that first life emerged from no life with no help at all. And this is actually what our schools teach and what maybe you've heard people talk about. And we kind of think that this is an easy one because we're so far removed from it. They say the further you are away from a problem, the easier it is to see it. And how much further away from first life creation can we actually get, right? So when we look at this idea, this theory states that life itself formed from a non-life matter with absolutely no help whatsoever. It just randomly occurred and, and that this idea became a simple problem. But when we look at this, this isn't a simple problem because even the first life itself was a very complex form of life. There had to be something else that intervened in the process to make it exactly what it is. And so the unsettling conclusion here is that if you push God out of the picture, you believe that this first life came from a non-life, a lifeless matter, and that somehow it made it all the way from this lifeless matter to the complexity of DNA and RNA that we have today that made you and I here sitting in this room today with no outside help whatsoever. The sixth and final one is this, the illusion of God. The illusion of God that God did not create us God was not invested. God is not interested in our lives, but rather that natural selection is responsible for all this life after first life. All life forms, all the variety we see, all the varieties that have come and gone through the years, natural selection is responsible for it. It's a survival of the fittest, if you will. At the end of his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins summarizes natural selection by saying this. Think about it. On one planet and possibly only one planet in the entire universe, exist molecules that would normally make nothing more complicated than a chunk of rock. These molecules gather themselves together into chunks of rock-sized matter of such staggering complexity that they're capable of running and jumping and swimming and flying and seeing and hearing, capturing and eating other such animated chunks of complexity, capable in some cases of thinking and feeling and falling in love with yet other chunks of complex matter. Basically, through natural selection, the most simplest form of life, he says, became every form of life that ever existed up until now. And even the ones that we don't see because they just weren't strong enough for useful survival. So the unsettling conclusion is, if God, if there is one, had nothing to do with our life and who we are today, then we are only here because of some mutation of a genome that fought for survival and won. And every time I read these, These passages, these these things about natural selection, it's so hard for me not to see that there's some higher power, that there's some force, there's some focus, there's some discipline. You can't put it out of business. You can't put it to a stop kind of power that exists behind creation and who we are today and, and everything that we see around the world. I struggle with that. And so if you feel that you've lost your faith in God, if you feel that maybe you're losing your faith in God, here's my hunch. It has absolutely nothing to do with any of the six things that we just talked about. Any of these ideas of what atheism is. It's not like you have this extraordinary faith that everything was great and God's faithful and yada, 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 whatever it may be. And then you read a book or you talk to someone and it just all went away overnight. It's not how it happens. In fact, I would guess that your struggle with faith has nothing to do with atheism at all. Your struggle with faith has nothing to do with creation or the universe or where did first life come from? No, that's not why we struggle. At the end of the day, the reason we've lost our faith or the reason that we struggle with faith is way more personal than any of this could ever be. And it's not that atheism has become more appealing, but it's that our version of who God is, our picture of who God is in our life has lost its appeal. It's lost its luster, and it doesn't even seem as if it could be real anymore. And maybe the reason isn't a different religion. Maybe the reason isn't a different faith or some theological struggle of who God is. But maybe, just maybe, it's the fact that the God that we're losing our faith in, the God that we believed in growing up in, the God that we prayed to, well, that God never existed in the first place. And the reason why I say that, as hard as that may sound, is because maybe we have the wrong view of who God is. Maybe we have the wrong idea or the wrong picture. Maybe we've put the wrong ideals of who the real God is in our life. And we've set God up for failure because we expect him to be that thing for us. It's what the world has told us that that's who God should be. And that's not who God is. And when we see that disconnect, we start to say, hey, you know what? Maybe God isn't real. And we walk away. But you know what? Here's what I know about most of us. Is that we hope that that isn't true. I hope that isn't true. I hope that there is more to this life than just this, because guess what? If you choose to step away from God, if you choose to walk away from your faith, from your religion, these are the things that you're moving towards. These are the conclusions that are unsettling that you're going to have to deal with. And in my life, and I hope in your life too, that you recognize that that's not what we want for life. We want joy. We want hope. We want peace to be there. We hope and we long for something more in our lives. And I can tell you folks that that hope, that hope has a name. And that hope is Jesus. That hope is God. And he is real. And he is there. And maybe we just need to stop thinking and seeing God the way the world portrays him and start seeing the way that God was really existing in our lives. And so who needs God? Every single one of us does because the other alternate reality, the other viewpoint of God that exists out there, it's hopeless. It's bleak. And there's not much to it. And I know that as human beings, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, we know, we hope that there is something more. And that something more is Jesus. And he wants to be a part of your life. And so who needs God? We all do. Just after the prayer, I'm going to ask him and the worship team to sing a special song, a response song that just kind of sets this in motion. To talk about this idea of even though there may be so many different theories, so many different ideas, so many different people who are walking away from faith, that we all need God. Regardless of what you believe, we all know without a doubt in our mind that there has to be something more to this life. And that something is God. Would you pray with me? Father, we are just so grateful for today. Father, just for this chance to be here. Father, just that we could praise you. Father, I know that maybe some of us are struggling or maybe some of us have friends or family members who are debating about walking away from you. Father, stepping away from who you are. And I pray that you'll just use this message this morning as as a means to help us reach them, Father. Father, just to help us understand what it truly means to walk away. Because Father, it's painful. Father, it hurts when we separate ourselves from you. But Father, we know with confidence in our hearts that no matter how far that we've walked away, if we've been dabbling with this idea, Father, if we've been straying away from you, Father, that you are still there. That you are the one consistent in our life, Father. And I pray that you just allow us to run back to you this morning. Father, to see how great you are, and just truly how much we need you in our lives. We love you, Father, and we pray that you just be a part of our lives again this morning. Allow us to invite you in, because you are already here. We pray this in your name.